0: Hey everyone, Artie here. So this week we're knee-deep in some administrative burdens of our own, dealing with the issue we described in the episode called Part D. So for today's episode, we're unlocking B and Jules' great conversation with Melissa Jira Grant about what's going on with the case involving medication abortion with mifepristone, and about the history of the Comstock Act, the 19th century obscenity law at the heart of the case. Now, there have been a few updates since this episode was first recorded. In mid-May, the Biden Justice Department defended access to Mifepristone before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and, by all reports, three very antagonistic judges. The decision at that level is supposed to come down in the coming weeks, so it's entirely possible you're listening to this after the Fifth Circuit decides against Mifepristone access, as they're widely expected to do. After that, the case is assumed to ultimately land in the Supreme Court, and I'm assuming we can all guess how that's going to go. So enough from me. We'll be back on Monday with a new episode in the patron feed. And in the meantime, we hope you appreciate this unlock. If you do, and you're not a patron yet, head to patreon.com deathpanelpod pod to support the show and get access to episodes just like the one you're about to hear.
1: And right now we can take political risks to protect the criminal risks that other people are taking. We don't actually have to wait for the law to catch up. It's not going to. We don't have time.
2: Welcome to the Deaf Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash DeafPanelPod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at DeafPanel underscore. So today, it's myself and my co-host, Jules Gil-Peterson. Hello. And the two of us are joined by returning guest and friend of the panel, Melissa Jira Grant. If you're not familiar with Melissa's work, she is a staff writer at The New Republic, the author of the book Playing the Whore, The Work of Sex Work, published by Verso. And her next book, which is forthcoming, is called A Woman is Against the Law, Sex, Race, and the Limits of Justice in America. And Melissa has been tirelessly covering the intersections of gender, sexuality, race, health and reproductive justice, and the so-called law at the New Republic. And as Jules put it in an email between the three of us last night, Melissa's work has been vital to making sense of this latest this round of fuckery that we're gonna talk about today. So Melissa, welcome back to the death panel. It's always so nice to have you on, even though it usually means that something terrible has happened that we urgently need to discuss.
1: Yeah, I can't think of like the last death panel episode I listened to, though, that was like the good news episode. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> maybe, maybe I'm missing one. But death is fine. in the name people know what they're signing up for. But yeah, somebody shared one of my stories last night and they were like, this is depressing, very informative, and I'm afraid it's correct. And I was like, that's it. That's basically my beat right there. that on a t-shirt. That could be a tattoo. (laughs)
3: That's
1: great. Thank you for the blurb.
2: Yes. (laughs) So let's get right into it. Um, Melissa is here so that the three of us can talk through The context and the implications of a recent court ruling attempting to limit abortion through criminalizing and blocking access to the abortion drug mifepristone. Now, that's just what is going on at the sort of surface level here. As Melissa put it in her recent piece for the New Republic you know, there's a bigger picture here. And what people thought was going to be this kind of wonky administrative law fight over the FDA and their ability to regulate certain medications could instead be a kind of much more complex issue and open the door to essentially a federal abortion ban by leveraging This 1873 federal anti-obscenity law called the Comstock Act, which we're also going to spend a lot of time talking about today. And Melissa, as you wrote in your second recent piece on this ruling that was published on April 20th, quote, this case purports to be about the FDA, but it's really about the end game banning abortion entirely. So with all of that said, I'm really excited to have you both here today to talk about this. You've both spent so much time researching and thinking about the Comstock Act and Comstock himself. And the Comstock Act is really important here to talk about because it kind of snuck up on a lot of people, but it's been very important in the recent fight to sort of try and eliminate mifeprestone as an available option for abortion in the U.S.
4: Yeah, it's like it, it, it's going to be interesting to kind of sink into this. I mean, I think on the surface, this all looks so wonky, right? Like, oh, no, these weird administrative law questions. And there's this whole right wing movement trying to destroy the, the, the ability of the state to like regulate anything. And that's certainly involved. But then all of a sudden, it's the Victorian era again. And I actually think that there's a conversation really worth having um, that's actually about politics and how we um, sort of tune our political consciousness in this moment, right? Like as feminist and queer and trans people and people fighting for a, a wide degree uh, of justice, because as your amazing reporting has helped us understand Melissa, like there's a lot uh, at stake. And if this kind of, Victorian era law gets to bloom again, you know, in its fullest kind of aperture, (laughs) you know, we are fucked because this is a this is a law that was originally designed to cover a lot of things, right? Abortion, contraception, but also obscenity, pornography. It had huge impacts on sex work and other things. So um, it just feels weird. I've like been reading about Comstock and the Comstock <laughs> Acts. since undergrad. Like it's like yes. truly been 10 plus years of me. Like I've actually just recently been doing some work on the 19th century where I was reviewing this law. So I can't believe we have to have this conversation except I <laughs> totally can. And I'm excited to be able to kind of lay that out a little bit.
1: It is so hard to even talk about what's going on with abortion right now without reckoning with that of like wait a minute Like, why do we have to talk about this thing again that we didn't actually think was about abortion or we didn't think was operative? Like, I've had a little Anthony Comstock living in my head for maybe not as far back as undergrad, but for decades. And he's in my new book, though he keeps dancing around the book. Like, Mm. is he in the chapter on obscenity? Is he going to be in a chapter about privacy? Uh. He's everywhere. I mean, that's sort of like the unfortunate Mm. thing that I've landed on and present events are only making that more clear slash depressing but yeah like one of the things on my mind and I hope we can get into a little bit is like why did this feel like it came out of nowhere and it would feel sort of like this disconnected like how can a law you know that's so quote-unquote prudish Mm -hmm. still have relevance haven't we moved on don't we have gay marriage now like these are the kinds of things that I've been sort of hearing and wrestling with and thinking are not sufficient explanations of why he continues to haunt us and why it feels like a surprise.
2: I think before we dive into Comstock itself, I think it's important to start by providing some context on you know why this law has become relevant again. Um, so let's talk about the court ruling that really initiated this whole situation and the latest developments in the ongoing criminalization of abortion in the US. So I think we should start here. Melissa, can you walk through what's been going on? There's been a flurry of activity in the last two weeks. This is Ruling is expected to come through tonight, actually. Uh, We're recording this on Friday, April 21st. It was initially supposed to come out earlier this week, and... They ended up delaying the ruling until Friday at midnight. So between the time that we're recording this and the time that it's released, um, it's likely that the Supreme Court will have weighed in by then. So can you just sort of set up for folks who maybe haven't had a chance to keep up with it or who are listening to this maybe a year from now? Who knows? Can you just sort of walk us through what's been going on here? Like, what the fuck has just happened the last two weeks, Melissa?
1: Yeah, I like for the the legal nerds in the audience, the name of this case, the full name, if you want to go look it up for reference on um, maybe a website like Court Listener, where you can read along with all of the court documents we're going to be talking about. <laughs> the technical name of the suit is, which I do for yeah, well, for work, but sort of for fun, but it's not <laughs> fun at all. The name of the suit is Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, that's the anti-abortion group, versus the US Food and Drug Administration. And this thing, even though it's sort of like burst on to, I think, the national political radar only in the last couple of weeks, started almost as soon as the Dobbs ruling came down from the Supreme Court last June, which feels like it was five minutes ago. but. These groups who were pushing Dobbs um, or pushing to roll back Roe v. Wade using the case that became known as Dobbs, um, using a Mississippi abortion ban to essentially undermine the constitutional right to abortion. And they won that same group of lawyers, Alliance Defending Freedom who listeners of the show may be like, hey, aren't those the people who are also pushing all the anti-trans laws? Surprise, surprise. (laughs) So weird. It's always them. (laughs) I know. Yeah, like, if you heard of the Masterpiece cake Shop suit that went before the Supreme Court uh, about... Should people have to make wedding cakes for same-sex couples if that violates their et cetera, et cetera? They are fighting this on like multiple prongs, but in their minds, like this is all sort of the same fight, whether it comes down to queerness or transness or anything that looks like reproductive or sexual freedom. They see this as one fight. And for them, killing Roe was a generational win. Um, but they were not okay. done. And so The idea was that after they had, you know, sent the question of abortion back to the states, which is how they messaged this with Dobbs, um, we know what happened in the intervening months. Um, Some states that already had abortion bans on the books going back, you know, almost to the 19th century. Some of those went into effect immediately. Other states that had some protections for abortion became sort of safe havens for people who are in states where abortion was now all of a sudden criminalized. And medication abortion, particularly the way that medication abortion is used to self-manage abortion. So an abortion that person having the abortion is facilitating sometimes with, you know, the support of an abortion doula or compañera, sometimes, you know, with some clinical support. That has been increasingly the best option for many people. And in 2021, the FDA made it easier for people to get access to those two drugs for medication abortion, mifepristone and misoprostol. And that is The moment that ADF and the anti-abortion groups say incited their interest in, you know, regulating Mifepristone out of a distance, essentially, you know, their argument is that the FDA like exceeded its authority um, when in 2021, they made Mifepristone easier to get through telehealth. So Mm -hmm. you you no longer would have to drive to a clinic to be seen and then to get the pills and then to Go back after like there's it's really not necessary in many cases. You can safely self manage an abortion with Mifepristone, and they make this argument about FDA regulations that on its face seems pretty sketchy and insincere, given the fact that
2: <laughs> I love that. that's the perfect way to describe that. Yeah, sketchy and insincere. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they you know the FDA first
1: approved the distribution of Mifepristone and the year 2000. There were congressional hearings about it in the 1990s. Other countries have had it available even longer. Um, So it's, you know, why now is the question? And then the answer is because we don't have Roe anymore. That's what it really is. Right. Um, And so what they see in this is not just, you know, an opportunity to remove this Incredibly powerful way for people to maintain abortion access now that we're in this like patchwork of abortion, you know, federalism or whatever, where like different, depends mm. where you live, basically. And that's been the case for some time, that it's even more severe now mm-hmm. um, without Roe. They know that this is like a, an important tool. They want to take this tool away from people. Um, they're also making their usual arguments about, oh, this is to protect women. And it's always just about women. So if I'm saying like protect women, that's not me saying only women need abortion. That's like me using their words. You know, it's always about protecting women. Sometimes they refer to them as um post-abortion women and girls you What? yeah wild wild reinventions they you know refer to this as chemical abortion which is like mm. it's the pill guys um and you know anti-abortion groups call me for prestone things like you know death mailed to your doorstep oh, like right. there's a <laughs> lot of like already sort of gothic language
2: <laughs> very cool stuff yes um, it's a callback to Victorian aesthetics in way more ways than one. Yes,
1: they are playing very dirty here. You know, they essentially got to pick the ref. They took this case to a stridently anti-abortion judge uh, who we also know has been anti-queer and anti-trans. This is mm-hmm. Judge Kazmieric or Judge Mary Kay or just Judge K, whatever. You know, he I think he's a millennial technically, which is a little tricky to... <laughs> (laughs) sometimes with this an older millennial i mean i'm like baby gen x so Mm. i'm having moments where i'm like the assholes who are fucking up my life and my friends lives are younger than me all of a sudden this is like a mind fuck um so anyway he you know they knew bringing this case to him would get them the result that they wanted and he affirmed their sketchy and insincere arguments The argument that wasn't in the original filing, or at least not as explicit as it became, once this was argued in court uh, last month in March, um, and arguing this was Erin Hawley, who, yes, she is Mm. the wife of Senator Josh Hawley, who, yes, played a role in getting Judge Kay onto this court, and breaking news. Also, Judge K donated to Josh Hawley Senate campaign, a donation that has mysteriously disappeared from the website Open Secrets this morning. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about the Aaron Hawley, Josh Hawley, Judge K mass. It's a little evocative of what's going on with Clarence Thomas right now. Yeah, He's also totally. been, you know, involved in some some sketchy influence peddling from rich people who want what they want from the Supreme Court. All that is to say, like at every level, they have been working the reps, if not not just working the reps, they've chosen them, right? They know that this is a court that's gonna give them this outcome. And so beyond just sort of saying, you know, the FDA exceeded their authority, which was like their baseline argument, which again, why are you bringing this case now if you think that that's been true for 23 years? Also, the doctors who are the ostensible plaintiffs in this case don't say that they actually have been harmed by the availability of Mava Priestow. Like they do not have standing to bring this case. They have no skin in the game. And yet Judge Kay, you know, let it go ahead. And the third and the most dangerous thing and the thing that we're mostly going to talk about. So we do not need to get into FDA stuff beyond this is that he co-signed. Alliance Defending Freedom's argument hmm. that actually the Comstock Act, an 1873 anti-obscenity law, parts of which have been ruled unconstitutional, but parts of which remain the law, that that already outlaws mailing mifepristone or any drug that could be used to cause abortion. <laughs> So there's two kind of horrible things about that. One is like an echo back to like, really, guys, why now? Mm -hmm. Right. If this has been on the books since 1873, why are we only hearing from you now? Um, And the answer is because, well, Judge K wasn't on this court until recently. And then we had to lose Roe. Like this, if there's ever a case that's sort of an argument for laws aren't real, this is Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is it. Um, And that's what's sort of maddening about following it is like this sort of like people who I think are committed to this idea of process and procedure and the courts have order. And no, Uh, that is all of the normal, quote unquote, normal workings of the courts are out the window broadly, (laughs) but especially in this case. So by saying that, yes, perhaps the Comstock Act does outlaw mailing abortion pills that opened up the question for the Supreme Court to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. And that is where we sit right now.
4: That's such a helpful. Thank you for walking <sighs> yeah. us through that because there's so I many layers involved. I kind of want involved. to
1: die. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, it's,
4: that. it's like the most cursed sandwich where every layer is just the the newly, the most annoying thing you've ever heard of. But I think yes. a couple of things that are, are really helpful here, right, is one, I mean, you know, Kizmarek's decision is so so poorly reasoned, it violates so many basic premises of the judicial process. Also just like bizarrely, badly written, like people were making fun of it on social media because just the sentences make no sense. The language is very much adopted from sort of moral campaigners, right? Not just like calling a medication that's used for a number of things, chemical abortion, but also just like the the actual way the decision is written is very bizarre. I think there was a sentence that ends with like, right question mark. (laughs) Um, Like actually like (laughs) someone is just like was speaking voice to text and, 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 you know, then made that a decision. But, but there's, you know, I think, I think one thing that is really helpful in the way you just lay this out to understand, because when the decision dropped and, you know, I was reading it, I was like, okay, I mean, I understand we're in this era where you know, judicial ideology and um, open corruption means that you could just make up stuff, right? And give it the force of law. That's essentially what Dobbs v. Jackson did. It's like not a well-reasoned case. It doesn't make sense logically. It's not supported by the facts. But still, right, you know, this, this decision was particularly egregious. And I was sort of, I remember thinking like, I don't know, this is not the strongest way for them to make this play. But I actually think if we understand a little bit that the play here Right. Is to put the kind of dog and pony show of the ludicrous sort of, you know, ostensible FDA issue. Right. Where the doctors could not prove that this drug hurt anyone. And so, like, if you can't prove that you can't like actually Traditionally, you can't file a lawsuit. Like no one was hurt. Uh, okay, so like then what? Right? It's just a magical idea that somewhere, somehow, one day, someone will be hurt by Miffy Prostone, though it has never happened. Right? But but actually, that that that's sort of the the Trojan horse for this larger legal strategy that is about Comstock, and I think it is about you know the next chapter in this all-out assault uh, on on freedom and reproductive autonomy Which is to say, okay, Roe versus Wade was overturned, but that didn't, you know, lead to a national ban on abortion or fetal personhood and some of these other kind of long-term goals uh, of the far-right movement. And so this this is really the chance, right, to find a federal uh, ban. on on abortion, even if it's only a partial ban concerning these drugs, but the Comstock Act has been sitting here all this time um, as you know, basically begging people, as I'm sure Anthony Comstock himself would, to to use it. So there there is something sort of tactically you know, important going on here that is maybe a little bit lurking beneath the surface of some of the more absurd uh, and just, like, really wonky aspects of what's going on. Not to say that the Comstock stuff isn't wonky, but just, like, there is something really important going on there uh, that I think, again, if we just look at the history of anti-abortion organizing in the United States, like, again, this has been a long time coming.
1: Yeah, like, if you looked at the actual court filings... Mostly what you're going to see is very obscure references to like different things that happened within the FDA over the last 23 years concerning MIFA And then it's sort of like buried within that. Yeah. You get these little sprinklings of what their intentions are with Comstock. So I can see why it would go past people and that trojan horse is incredibly effective like most people don't have comstock on the mind um and and in fact in some of their rulings they didn't even cite the comstock act by name they just like referenced the text of it which also made it like i was looking for it and i had to eventually just plug in the numbers of the law in the u.s criminal code which are Uh. now burned in my brain my favorite bad judge k line if i can ask for everyone's indulgence. So the text of the Comstock Act, which is probably worth just putting into the record at this point. Though it's impossible um, to
4: read out loud because it's the most ridiculous 19th century statute. Like the sentence is out of control. It's like 25 (laughs) lines long, but please go for it.
1: So um, Erin Hawley, on behalf of Alliance Defending Freedom, her argument is, and this is more or less directly quoting from Comstock, the Comstock Act plainly prohibits the mailing of drugs that are designed, manufactured, or intended for use as abortions. We submit this plainly applies to the FDA's actions here. Fast forward a week, Judge Kay essentially vomits that out, um, but he (laughs) uses actual quotations from Comstock. And so you get a sentence that goes like this. It is indisputable that chemical abortion drugs are both, quote, drugs, unquote, and are, quote, for producing abortion, unquote. Therefore, they are un- unlawful to male. It's like, yes, abortion drugs are both drugs. And for, and for producing abortion. Like, what are we doing? What a sterly oh legal mind. What are, we, what are we doing here? Um, and like who has heard of this before? Like, I am yeah. not saying this to knock anybody, but you know, there have been a lot of kind of scramblings in the legal community, particularly people who focus on repro stuff after Dobbs to figure out how to respond to this. I went to one of these gatherings. Hmm. Um in the intervening months and nobody there had heard of the Comstock Act until I brought it up Ah. and I only brought it up not even with this scenario in mind I brought it up because other parts of the Comstock Act that are still in the books concerned speech about abortion Mm. um, because the regulations that applied to the first Comstock Act like which is you know, essentially saying you cannot send anything that could cause an abortion, but also conversation and education about abortion, no pamphlets, no newspapers, all of that. If it went through the mail, that was also considered right. um, unmailable. Mm. So that was updated in the nineties um, to go from the postal service to the internet. That's what I was worried about until roughly two weeks ago. Now, <laughs> this could go so much further than that, potentially so much further than taking Mifepristone off the market if you're broadly going to consider anything that could cause an abortion that could go through the mail as now a crime, how does, how does a clinic operate? You know, like, what do you, like, it's, it, it's so broad. Like I kind of don't even want to say it out loud. Cause I don't want to give people ideas, but clearly they have
2: ideas. <laughs> and like, yeah,
1: we're watching I, this play
2: out. Right. Yeah. And what about medications that happen to also cause abortion? You know, like exactly. what about things yes. like, I don't want to be like, what about my medication? But like what about methotrexate no, but For real. Right? Like already what about- been yeah. a huge issue. Yeah. Like it just it in terms of like sort of how Comstock even got on your radar, Melissa, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sort of talking about that for a second because I saw you tweet about how initially you had sort of even gotten interested in this actually in the context of like sesta fosta not even yeah about this current fight
1: oh my god yeah speaking of things that feel like they happened five minutes ago but actually happened five years ago i'm so sorry Um, (laughs) it's okay (laughs) this is like how history distorts itself while you're living through it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, and also how we got into this situation where a bipartisan legislative you know consensus is enabling the environment that we live in right now
1: it's it's like the 1870s never ended on so many levels like the comstock act super popular like it was modified in some ways but like this thing is so old just to give people a visual like the president who signed this into law was ulysses s grant (laughs) not a relation uh but like come on every single person who wrote this act voted for this act is dead anthony comstock long dead um and yet it's back to haunt us so yeah i heard about it in the context of sesta fosta well i knew about it because you know i was a sex worker and you can't do anything around sex worker activism around the law without bumping in anthony comstock at some point um because this was his conception of vice um in addition to, you know, including prostitution and pornography or anything that he thought was obscene and abortion and contraception, like, in a weird way, I found it very powerful to be, like, in a time when, say, abortion rights groups were being a little wishy-washy on sex work, and Mm -hmm. they still somewhat are, um, it felt like, okay, well, this guy saw us all as -hmm. the same Mm perverts. So, like, (laughs) can we maybe... You know, not to say he's right, but like kind of yes. Um, and mm. let's work together. Right. So build solidarity are, out of that yeah. Yes. Yeah, maybe. Um, and and there was, you know, when I when I first sort of had to deal with Comstock in the course of like modern legislation, which was this thing that I just mentioned, where it makes talking about abortion online conceivably a violation of this law. And, you know, what SESTA-FOSTA did was also change, I don't want to get too far into it, but it, it changed the liability online for who would be legally liable for speech mm-hmm. online, the person doing the speaking or the place that's hosting the speech. And that's also very Comstocky. And, yes. you know, I started like digging back through like the legislative record on Comstock and the Communications Decency Act which is the thing that sesta Fausto was modifying to sort of have this carve out for now any speech around promoting prostitution and trafficking now is also unlawful or potentially creates legal liability. Um, it, I saw this like gaping hole sitting there that was like, wait a minute, at the time that Congress debated the Communications Decency Act in 1996, members of the House of Representatives said, hey, did you guys know if we upstate the Comstock Act to include the internet, we're potentially jeopardizing like all of the speech about abortion? By the way, oh God. Um, they didn't modify the Communications Decency Act to carve that out. And in fact, when Bill Clinton signed it into law, said, I don't believe the abortion provisions will be enforced. Janet Reno, and she was the attorney general at the time, she put out a memo saying Department of Justice is not going to enforce this. Kind of there, there girls. You know, <laughs> oh, don't worry. Yeah. Um These motherfuckers. And so <laughs> Here I am sitting in 2018 staring at this 1996 sort of Um, history and being like, well, who's running the Department of Justice now? Right. Right. At the time it was Bill Barr. And so I was going to write something then that was like, you know, hey, guys, like while we're talking about making certain things around sex work unlawful to talk about online, did you know that that was actually already the case? for abortion. And the only reason it hasn't been prosecuted is these like gentlemen's agreements from 1996. Mm. Mm. And I ended up not publishing it because no one was talking about it. And I didn't want to give the right ideas. Totally. Straight up. Like there's a reason I sat on that piece until Roe actually was gone. I talked to people who were involved in the fight at the time at Mm. the ACLU and Electronic Frontier Foundation. And even before Roe fell, they were like, eh, It's never going to happen. These prosecutions like this is sat there in the law unused for decades and decades and decades. We don't have to worry about that. (sighs) And that is exactly the situation we're in right now with me. Oh, (laughs) I kind of. I don't know. I maybe. Staggering. Yeah. like I don't, I don't know if it would have changed anything to write about it at the time, to be honest, because of you said, Jules, mm. this was so popular. Nobody wanted to mm. back away from this conversation about, quote unquote, saving people from trafficking in the same way that right. in the 90s, nobody wanted to say it was OK to have porn on the Internet for children, which is ostensibly why that right. law was passed. So it's, yeah, the, this kind of like legislative forgetting um, mm. or being told, don't worry about it. I, mm-hmm. it it feels very familiar to me.
4: Well, I and I think it's really helpful. That's such a useful setup for our conversation to like really drill down into you know what Comstock, the person and the act was about, and 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 sort of what this Victorian era state infrastructure that has never been disassembled means. Um, because I think that we're going to be whatever the Supreme Court's determination is. I think we're going to be treated to a lot of punditry and political yeah. messaging from a liberal position that's going to say, first of all, don't, don't worry. The same thing we've been told for years as every single right is systematically dismantled. Um, but also like, it's not a big deal and let, let the technocrats solve this. And so I wonder if it might be helpful just to like, I I, I got really obsessed with this and I kind of uh, I went in and, and, and researched the legal history a little bit just to briefly outline it so we can kind of point out the danger um, that you're just so carefully elaborating and then get into what's really lurking underneath all of this because, you know, Judge Kosmerich, right, basically adopted the Hawley ADF line that was that mifeprostone is a drug and a drug that produces abortion therefore mifeprostone is a drug that produces abortion which is illegal to <laughs> (laughs) Mail under the Comstock Act. Okay. That's the weird sentence, right? Just to say for listeners, because I think we're going to be bombarded with this kind of reasoning shortly, whatever the Supreme Court says. The reason why, technically, empirically, like logically, the claim the judge is ratifying is incorrect, is that that would only be true under the original 1873 law. The original 1873 Comstock Act that was passed by Congress, absolutely, under that law, absolutely, mifepristone would definitely be illegal to send via the United States Postal Service or even FedEx or UPS. Definitely, because that law said you can't send anything, anything, any instrument, any drug, but also like, a pamphlet, even a doctor can't send a letter (laughs) to a patient that says anything about abortion or (laughs) contraception uh, or anything sexually immoral. So under the 1873 law, sure, sure, this would be illegal. But the thing is, the 1870 law is, was, was barely in effect for very long. In fact, for over a hundred years, the original text of that law, which they're relying on has essentially been modified, curtailed, narrowed, and substantially restricted. So there were like a string of court decisions. The first one was as early as 1915, where you had federal courts being like, well, the original statute is too broad because actually, abortions are not entirely illegal everywhere in the United States. And so there's this sort of series of court decisions, 1915, 1930, 1933, 1944, where basically courts are saying, well, like, for example, in New York State, you know, there's a there's a case, right, where um, a rubber company that creates, you know, different medical devices, you know, is prosecuted under the Comstock Act. And the court is like, well, I mean, technically, this rubber company is producing an item that a doctor can legally prescribe under New York law, because there are certain very few exceptions where it is actually legally allowed allowed to help you know someone obtain an abortion if their life is at risk right or later there's a case about condom manufacturers and they're like well technically in some places a married couple is allowed under you know local laws to access condoms so So, you know, slowly, this text of the 1873 law is narrowed and chipped away in this kind of judicial, you know, arc. Uh, And so that original kind of unambiguous text is reduced in its scope substantially, you know, and then by the time we get to the to the mid-century, Congress also starts amending the Constopte Act a number of times, 1955, 1958, 1971, 1994. And one of the things that it does, and this is the administrative law part, is it basically incorporates the language it, it copy pastes the language of these court decisions to narrow the scope of the act and it basically says congress now agrees and is ratifying uh, all of these prior legal decisions by incorporating them into revisions to the statute. And the U.S. Postal Service is actually implementing those and understands that. So even because I think one thing we'll hear about, right, is like, oh, well, isn't the reason, you know, Comstock can't be applied because one in the 1960s, the Supreme Court, you know, decided in Griswold versus Connecticut that there is a right to contraception first for married couples. Right. And then obviously Roe versus. Wade, when it went into effect, also superseded parts of Comstock. And so the argument that we'll probably be hearing is like, oh, no, if this court is going after Griswold, like that opens Comstock back up. But like the the legal opinion of the Department of Justice today is like, no, actually, even well before the 1960s, the Comstock Act of 1873 had been substantially curtailed. And so it had basically gotten to a point where the legal consensus that Congress eventually incorporated and ratified. Many times, was that what was actually illegal under the law, you know, as it exists now, was not uh, sending anything, having anything to do with an abortion ever, but sending something through the mail uh, for an illegal purpose for an unlawful abortion, right, for an abortion that is illegal in the place where it would transpire, then you can't send the medication in the mail. And that all seems, you know, from from going back and looking at that, like, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, I am. I do do study legal history. Yeah, that seems like pretty good reasoning, sure. Um, Although I will say, one, we clearly, like you were just saying, a lot of what stands for good legal reasoning is just a series of agreements between people. And then when one party stops playing game, it turns out, right? Um, and then there's this larger question about what the Comstock Act's, you know, other remaining, you know, components sort of mean and, and what its intent was in the sort of Victorian era. But I think just broadly speaking, I think the way we're about to hear, like, just trust just trust the courts, just don't worry, right? Comstock was totally, you know, um, modified so many times. It's not really like the 1873 law anymore. And it's like, well, but no one ever fully just straight up repealed it. Mm -hmm. And also like this, this wonky technocratic language, I just want to flag for people this legal history. To me, I was like, oh, well, these are not great rights, right? These are like limited, like, oh, well, in this one place, if your life is in danger, you can get access to this right these are not unambiguous <laughs> rights to abortion these are the total liberal compromise nonsense kind of rights that have been proven so weak over time where you maybe sometimes kind of have a right if a doctor agrees with you and you have access and you live in the right place or you travel to the right jurisdiction and the manufacturer agrees and hasn't been sued Ugh. right like it's these are not uh, real kinds of yes. rights Ugh. and i just feel like basically <laughs> i don't know one thing i don't want to i don't want to look into a crystal ball because a recording before the Supreme Court, hands down. But I'm just thinking about the Biden admin's penchant for compromise, for technocratic compromise. And I just can't help but thinking there's going to be one One possible outcome of this is certainly just a total fucking like federal ban on mifepristone and therefore a federal ban on abortion. But a, a compromise version that will be quite devastating indeed, and will not slow down the relentless march of these anti-abortion crusaders, that version would be something like, well, actually, <laughs> mifoprostone can only be mailed to states that now allow mifoprostone, and so we'll end up with this, again, another patchwork system. NPR. Friday,
0: April 21st. Quote, the Supreme Court's action means if for now at least the drug will be widely available at least in those states where abortion is legal for up to 10 weeks into a pregnancy
4: and when considering that these kinds of self-managed abortions are probably the majority of abortions that happen that's a devastating material and just empirical blow right Mm -hmm. to access to these vital medications and it also when you create these patchwork systems i mean this is just the entire history of of the US federal state kind of devolving this kind of devolving form of federalism that's designed to facilitate Uh, Repression is designed to facilitate police states and fascist, you know, sort of repressive state apparatuses, whether they're white supremacist or patriarchal and misogynist uh, or anti-queer, anti-trans. And so I just worry that even, I wanted to go through that. I know it was very pedantic, but I just worry that we're going to be told, like, trust this legal history. It's going to vindicate us when I actually think it's a devastatingly unhelpful legal history that precisely creates the vulnerable Ability so that we get another maybe Pyrrhic victory where it's like going to be like, don't worry. Right. Like, because, hey, anyone could, you know, pay five hundred dollars to book a round trip ticket to New York, where, which is hoarding if a pro stone <laughs> stockpiling it My so God. it can expire in a warehouse somewhere. Um, and te- <laughs> but technically you can get that abortion in New York. And it's like, no. Absolutely not. So I just think as we're trying to think about sort of how our counter politics outwit this nonsense, um, you know, at, at the sort of level of its implementation, but also the kind of political spirit and this kind of like thing that we've been seeing a lot in the last 10 years where the sort of liberal, you know, consensus and command to people is sit down, shut up, don't protest, don't organize, don't do anything illegal, don't try and make a better world. Just accept that technically somewhere in this country, technically someone can get an abortion. Like absolutely fucking not. But I think that 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 I really understand as reflected in this sort of strange, arcane kind of legal history.
2: Mm, Jules, I really, really appreciate you bringing that in. It is such a kind of flimsy and vague history in terms of like the precedent setting and the fact that this is a kind of like Comstock Act originalism is a little terrifying. Yeah, it's like terrifying, especially in the context. I'm thinking back, Jules, to our conversation with Lexi McMenamin and their reporting on the Biden administration's Title IX clarification where they were like, hey, listen, You can't ban trans people from sports writ large, but go forth and create a complex taxonomy that reflects your local values in order to specifically ban trans people according to your context and your community's Mm. needs. You know, that kind of unhelpful shit that they claimed that they had been working on since the day after Biden was fucking inaugurated. (laughs) those are the people that are telling us, don't worry, we've, you know, we trust the precedent. And then that is the precedent. I mean, fuck, it is so frustrating.
4: It's Victorian. It's Victorian, right? Like, I'm Mm -hmm. so curious, Melissa, if this like, rings true for you too. Like, when I hear these sorts of liberal platitudes, I actually hear echoes of Comstock. I hear this kind Mm -hmm. of like, let's actually create all these tentacles for the state to regulate people's embodiment and people's bodily processes and put them to sort of national purposes. Like, to me, I think there actually is this Victorian legacy that's still playing out that, that you know, understandably, you know, the public hasn't really been given any tools to decode. But I just feel like the Biden administration, right, actually doesn't want to repeal the Comstock Act. Mm-hmm. They want this form of governmentality. That's why they like Fosta SESTA, like right, like they just actually endorse yeah. the legal regulation of sexuality at the federal level.
1: Mm-hmm. It's maybe helpful, and I'm going to rely on you, Jules, a little bit to to fill in the gaps here in my History of Sexuality, Volume One recollection.
3: <laughs> this moment, but like <laughs> I got you. you know,
1: eighteen. Let's ta- let's talk about 1873, yeah. yeah, for a moment, right? Like Comstock's title for this law, and I'm going to read it. It's not that long. An act for the suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. Mm. <laughs> right there, just from a like SEO 2023 perspective, very unhelpful because yeah. what is not in the name? Abortion, contraception, right. pornography, like all of these things that it actually impacts. Um, and when you get into the text, it's in there. But you know, I see Comstock Act shorthanded. Even by people who understand everything that's going on in it, I've done it too as an anti-obscenity law. Mm-hmm. But our understanding of what obscenity is now and yeah. how obscenity was understood then, you know, even at the time, like I've been digging back into some the work of historians of contraception mm. and abortion, who, by the way, saw all of this coming. Uh-huh. <laughs> like,
4: saw this coming decades know. ago. It's in their books in the 90s. A hundred
1: percent. Like Fuck. people like um Lauren MacIver Thompson, Mary Siegler. Yep. Um, You know, it's they had Comstock on the brain and could interpret the present moment through that. So I guess what I'm trying to say is Comstock is the invention of the Comstock Act itself is inseparable from the invention of sexuality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the ways that sexuality is regulated by the state. These are things that are kind of happening at the same time Mm -hmm. that there is this category of human being called a homosexual and there's this category of sexual activity called sodomy and all of these sort of categorizations and breaking down, which in our sort of historical forgetting, get shorthanded to like, oh, well, that's so Victorian. Um, And for me, like the mindfuck of Foucault, I can't believe I'm about to recollect learning this, was like, (laughs) oh my God, those people were absolutely not prudes at all. They were completely sex obsessed. Like you couldn't do this kind of legislation without constantly thinking about parsing out the minute differences between different kinds of sex acts and people and desires. Um, So it is producing sexuality. And I agree, like we haven't left that universe
4: no, we're all. fully within it, right? And and it actually because yeah. it's constitutive of the administrative, policing, legal world that we live in and also our culture of sexuality. That mm-hmm. is one of the points that Foucault was making, though not necessarily about the US, right? I, I it's totally right. And 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 you know, maybe just to just to say too, one thing that might be interesting for listeners to know is like You know, in in histories of sexuality, histories of contraception, histories of abortion, histories of obscenity, histories of sex work and queer and trans history, 1870 is often like a boundary, like books often Mm -hmm. go like 1820 to 1870 or start in 1870. And, and there are a number of things that happened at the beginning of the 1870s, but actually one of them is absolutely the Comstock Act. This is such a substantial historical event that it has structured periodization, you know, for scholars for decades at this point. Of course, it's the dawning of the Victorian era. But just to say, right, like to give folks a sense of sort of. Okay, let's let's start talking about this guy. Who's this guy? Anthony Comstock, right? He's literally just like some guy, right? This, this he's not a professional politician. He's a New Yorker who is just so outraged by <laughs> immorality and vice, and his sense of obscenity, right? His personal sense of obscenity, which certainly was reflected in kind of reformist, you know, Christian. I mean, he's a prominent. Um, you know, member of, of the YMCA at the time, you know, but the story kind of goes that a friend of his died in in Brooklyn and, and he was so outraged and felt like, you know, the immoral, the immoral world of Brooklyn and New York, this world of drugs and sex and prostitution and, you know, pornography had killed his friend, uh, you know, that he decides to take it on him. You know, as a personal mission, you know, to save America from, from, from sex. And so his definition of obscenity is really anything sexual at all, like that there should be no sexual content in public. There should be no infrastructure uh, made available in public to facilitate anything sexual ever. Ever. Mm-hmm. Ever. Mm-hmm. Anything. Right. And that's why this Comstock law, which he lobbies to get passed, is this sort of novel legal formation. He's like, how could we how could we basically create a police power to repress Everything sexual. That's why the law covers obscenity. So it includes novels, poetry, newspapers, right? Anything printed. Like a lot of the law just refers to pieces of paper, right? That have Mm -hmm. anything sexual on them, not just like images, right? But even famously, literature right? Highbrow literature, right? Not just smutty pornography, anything, right? But it's also a law that substantially empowers the police um, to conduct raids, to go after sex workers, to go after queer people and trans people in public to criminalize the sexuality of immigrants, of African Americans in particular, as always already suspect for for being public. Uh, And it also then includes all of these uh, you know parts that have to deal with medicine and have to deal with regulating contraception abortion um and reproduction and mm-hmm. so it's this very wide-ranging kind of law and his sort of ingenious notion is what if we just use the postal service right because here's this <laughs> here's this thing that sounds ridiculous it, it sounds yeah. ridiculous, but it's but so it's, it's so insidious. It's so insidious. Well, because yes. it's in the Constitution, right? The yeah. Postal Service yeah. is part of the powers of the federal government, so it reaches its tentacles into every fucking county even, in the country. Even
2: the rural counties and residents that exactly. aren't reached by any other you know U.S. federal service exactly. of any kind. Yeah, it's so this, terrifying. Yeah.
4: It's terrifying. The story of Comstock is this New York City story, but it has this far-reaching effect, right? And so it's a very simple idea. It's like, well, we'll just say you can't. None of that can ever go through the mail, which also means later it can't be imported into the United States. And this has an absolutely devastating, chilling effect. So in in a place like New York City, it leads to because the law also prescribes police powers and famously Comstock himself gets, you know, appointed basically, you know, the federal agent for obscenity, a.k.a. a postal inspector. And he, you know, very nobly says, well, I shall take no salary for this. I'll just get paid by my private society for the you know, for the suppression of vice in New York. And they basically- It's Harlan Crow, essentially. It's yeah. so Harlan <laughs> Crow. It, it yes. is, but it's this era, right? Just yeah. to say right. part of what historians yeah. mark out is like prior to this era, for example, in New York City, right? It's not like it was like, a wonderful time to be, you know, a person who could get pregnant or a sex worker. But for example, you know, for decades in New York City, sex workers had, you know, sex work was largely a woman-run industry where women, you know, managed their own affairs, banded together, rented places, owned places together, had a certain degree of autonomy. There weren't necessarily pimps or other people kind of, you know, as directly exploiting them. They were relatively tolerated by the police. though They were occasionally targeted for violence, but but Comstock introduces this era of police raids, this Mm -hmm. era of vice squads, which are not even always police. It can literally be, Comstock is famous himself for being the kind of guy that will just bust into a private residence and accuse you of something immoral and, you know, he himself might not have been one of the people who did this, but other kinds of vice squads would just break into a place they consider to be a brothel, beat up the people they find there, declare them obscene, and then kind of walk away or hope that they get prosecuted. And it leads to this total chilling effect on the publishing industry. It absolutely hamstrings, you know, doctors. It causes such a serious problem in accessing contraception and abortion, right? That until those early legal decisions, things are really dark. So this is an incredibly repressive, incredibly involved idea that, you know, modern sexuality is a legitimate target of state power. And I think one thing to point out is is what you were just saying, Melissa, this consensus is so productive mm. for the federal state and then for, for states themselves, because many states pass their own Comstock kinds of laws. We've never, ever, 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 ever reversed that consensus. And that is why, you know, we still tolerate a degree of regulation of people's sexuality that ostensibly is unimaginable in any other sphere of life. And why hmm. we still allow and I think like yes. it's it's one key to maybe like deflating this sort of annoying need to like dunk on and claim how cringy right-wing evangelicals are, how sex-obsessed, right? You know, Republicans, all they think about all day are genitals. Well, (laughs) sure, sure, sure. They didn't just start doing that 10 years ago. That's a Victorian attitude. And it's a widely shared attitude. Liberals do it too. They just dress it Mm -hmm. up as more rational and scientifically enlightened. But this, again, is a consensus form of state repression using sexuality and gender through the the lens of obscenity and immorality to declare what is licit and what is illicit, to create Mm -hmm. parameters around participation in public life, to criminalize entire populations of people, and to decide the limits of citizenship. And it has been so for 150 years. And I just, I think, again, this is like... Ground floor history Sexuality stuff But like Since that is famously Not taught um, In public education Like I Mm -hmm. just That's why I'm really like You know Really really hammering it home
1: And increasingly A specific target Of things that shall not be taught Mm -hmm. (laughs) In public education Mm -hmm. Like Everything that we've seen over the last two years, you know, what do we also have this week? The expansion of, quote unquote, don't say gay. Try having a conversation about any of this in an educational setting and not violating the law. And honestly, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the chilling effect. People who might teach this history are going to say, well, uh, I'm I'm not going to take the risk, which is the Comstock vibe. Mm-hmm. Yes. and has always been and, it, and is with us like I was just looking at some of those older cases the names are like I take my delight where I can and archaic oh, yeah, language the rubber company <laughs> one of them yes, yes. Like, packet of pessaries, United yes, of bre- pessaries. Oh, love 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 um, and you know I was like thinking about that I'm like well who's the defendant in this original case it's the FDA why isn't it pills oh because going back to the 1870s if you open a newspaper, if you like were existing in public, going to a drugstore or a pharmacy, there were instruments of contraception and abortion available to you.
4: Everywhere. Mm-hmm.
1: There were ads. You could, the library of Congress has great, great collections on yeah. their website of some of these ads. Um, and we reproduced some of them with permission at, at TNR in a story about abortion medication. Um, it's called female monthly pills. <laughs> and, you know, there were all these euphemisms. Everybody knew what they were. And, that's what comstock is reacting to is this visibility mm-hmm. of sexuality it's not to say like they brought it on themselves it's to mm-hmm. say that it wasn't like there was this void of no sexuality yes. and then these regulations sprang up as people started thinking about what should they be this is a backlash
3: yes. um
1: and and we never really left that sort of mentality so yeah like of course why is the fda The defendant in this case well why are there even doctors with control over contraception that has not always been the case and it is one of the legacies of this era why is abortion even criminal in part because physicians wanted to take control over it as a practice it's all knotted up in in something that like leads me to fear and i want to talk a little bit about like Mm. not outcomes but sort of as you were framing it like what's our counter politics to these Mm. possible outcomes the, the case that you laid out, which is essentially the Department of Justice's case, they put out a memo about this uh, late last year, mm-hmm. making the argument that, you know, Comstock has been so modified over the years that it's only really applicable to places where or this particular part of it is only applicable to places where abortion is already unlawful. So, you know, it shouldn't be a blanket prohibition essentially as these <laughs> groups like Alliance Defending Freedom Fucking are right arguing sauce. for. <laughs> yeah. Which like, yes, the letter of the 1873 law would prescribe that, but it's really fucking rich hearing people do textualism who are also like oh standing that's just like when you think you might be a victim someday Uh (laughs) which one and that this is sort of the and i hate to say gaslighting but like this is the gaslighting of the legal system that has always been there that is even more virulent and in our face in this moment as we see people just do it in our face you know like Uh on the one hand adf is saying no we must prohibit for pres access in the country right now before we've even had the actual merits of our case talked about in court like we're in the pre of that right now we're all in this like procedural era like can they proceed do they have standing mm-hmm. and that is the environment in which adf said oh and also we want our outcome right now we want we want you to put a temporary hold on the fda's me for prestone regulations while this is in court that's the actual thing that we're fighting about so just like think about that for a moment like they've invented a danger Mm -hmm. and so now we're in this crouch of having to like what defend the fda it reminds (laughs) me a lot of the anti-trans stuff it's like these regulations like the status quo was not great um and it's certainly better now than it was in the year 2000 but like i it there's nothing here that says Contraception is a right. There's nothing here that affirms anything like bodily autonomy. It's presumed that this is always a negotiation with the state for little bits and pieces and also full well knowing that that's not how people's sexuality actually works. People are going to live their lives and violate the law. And based on where people are in the social order, the law will take care of them, Mm. i.e. criminalize them. Mm -hmm. They're opening the door here also, I think, for a more direct criminalization of abortion. And, and, you know, people have been jailed. People have been prosecuted for medication abortion before Roe fell, um, Mm. even in states where it's ostensibly legal. Mm. So... I fear that that will get this like super narrow little win, quote unquote win, Um, this return to the shitty status quo. That's Mm. like, oh, well actually it's just states where it's unlawful. Um, And that's now the Comstock like cat is out of the bag.
3: Yeah. And and we're just going
1: to see it sort of resurrected in different contexts. Um, And because we're in a like, what is the law even moment? (laughs) It's really hard to forecast where that might take us. But that's also an argument for these more universalist demands. Mm-hmm, yeah. Absolutely, like, Let's not try to pretend that we know what FDA policy is going to be on this after this case. It's not really about that.
2: Right. Aye. This is
1: about a group of people who, like Comstock, have certain designs on what the American people should look like, have an explicit interest in preserving the white women's reproductive capacity if not coercing that capacity into producing children while restricting others or criminalizing others we haven't talked about eugenics yet i don't know that we have time to get deeply into it but like that is part of the comstock project if anything i think he precedes eugenics Mm -hmm. a little bit and eugenics is sort of like oh this guy okay great (laughs) it's
2: like we're all about that 10 years exactly before like Mm -hmm. Galton's first book is published but I mean this is like a sentiment that's been long building you know eugenics is a is almost more of like a brand name for an older sentiment that becomes policy language and that's really what's kind of terrifying is to think about okay so like in a way thinking about Comstock really contextualizes for example like how folks who were early uh, supporters of abortion in the United States really do begin to get involved in sterilization policies. Because yes. I'm just thinking about, you know, 1907, that's the first uh, sterilization law in the United States. That's in Indiana. And that first year, I think they sterilized 2,500 people. And the, the reason why is they were like, well, vice and criminality is inheritable. And, you know, we we can't uh, afford to, like, care for all of these, you know, promiscuous criminal deviants, and this is our kind of only option. And by 1930, there were like 60,000 people a year in the United States sterilized, and this was like uh, totally legal and on the books through the 80s. So that strategy becoming popular, eugenics becoming so popular as an option, right, in, in the context of what Comstock has just done 10 years earlier, I think is really important for also understanding how sometimes when we allow these consensus uh, frameworks to exist, right, whether they're narrowed or not, that consensus in and of itself can result downstream in policy outcomes like the fucking eugenics movement, right? There can be this kind of consensus that builds into, well, you know what, not only should we not you know allow vice to be spread like a virus throughout society maybe the people you know contacting that vice themselves are a virus right and then that's sort of how these ideas become real right we have to sort of embody them in language and and the law is really just like an embodiment of, of language and values and what we've really seen is this kind of return i think in The last 50 years to the idea that like the law in and of itself is somehow reliable or trustworthy where we can uh, sort of build movements based on interfacing with the system of justice and, and advocating for rights at this kind of. Level, But I think in terms of what that gives us in terms of demands or reactions or ranges of possibilities when something like this happens, then becomes like the kind of limp shit of like, oh, no, we'll see. Here's this precedent. And really, don't worry. It's still legal in X, Y, Z states. Here are the three exceptions. You know, it's like and and you sort of no wonder that's what we're left with at the end of the day. And that is like, not only useless, but also totally demobilizing, I think.
4: Mm. Well, and I just think that that like this question of our counter politics, right? It's not it's actually not reactionary to say, what is the coalition imagined by power right and if we go back and think okay who, who how does anthony comstock view the relationship amongst different groups of people in the united states right so if his project is securitizing the obligation and mandate of white reproduction so targeting white women as a class right under this law as the ones ostensibly being protected from vice as a kind, you know, that's the the carrot stick thing, protecting them from vice in order to facilitate their mandatory reproduction for a white nation, you know, in the wake of the civil war that is attempting mm-hmm. very substantially, right, in the lead up to the arrival of explicit eugenics to understand itself as having a white civilizational mission that is explicitly a late 19th century U.S., you know, political culture and policy point. Well, Comstock sees the securitization of white ruling class reproduction as directly dependent on the policing of all undesirable populations associated with vice. And so Comstock names the connection, right, that white women's mandate to reproduce, to have children uh, for the purposes of the national body is directly dependent upon targeting sex workers Gay people, right? Um, People who are wearing the wrong clothes, right? People who use contraception, people who uh, want to get abortions, leftists, right? You know, people Mm -hmm. basically who believe in free speech, people who produce pornography, libertines, libertarians, right? Uh, And also, then this feeds into the logic by which the mandate to enforce white pre production is directly, directly dependent on at the level of policy, at the level of medicine, at the level of law, on the targeted sterilization of Black and Brown, Indigenous women, immigrant women, right? Um, And also a kind of mandate to then eliminate dysgenic populations from the sort of gene pool writ large. So the targeting of people with disabilities, the targeting of people um, criminalized or incarcerated, the targeting, you know, of people who are, you know, labeled as deviant uh, and, you know, basically irreparable or unsalvageable. And so this is the, the, that is the dramatis personae and the relationship amongst populations that Comstock envisions very much in the, the mainstream of Victorian American, white American culture. And so the question for me that I think you so beautifully have set up for us, Melissa, is like, okay, Our political coalition has to be at least that big, and we have to understand these interests as fundamentally intertwined, Mm -hmm. which is to say, you know, we have to be defending and mobilizing in favor of, at one at the same time, abortion and sex work, right? Sex work and pornography, right? Pornography and gay and trans uh, freedom movements, right? Uh, Gay and trans freedom movements and abolitionist movements seeking to rid our world of policing and prisons, right? We have to also be challenging the the biocertification, the medical regime, the eugenic biomedical regimes that continue to hoard authority over embodiment uh, and have kind of carceral police powers attributed to them as supposed alternatives, you know, to state repression. We have to see all of these things as interconnected because they actually are interconnected materially, historically, empirically. That Mm -hmm. is the contribution of the Victorian era that I think is so helpful. And if I had to have a guess as to how over time, I don't think it's just a matter of of forgetting, of course, Who knows the 1870s beyond nerds like us? That's fair. Like (laughs) I don't expect fair. I love that. Yeah, (laughs) totally okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think there actually has been an ideological project of U.S. liberalism, particularly in the mid 20th century. It's this 1960s progress narrative, this sort of narrative that is circulated around freedoms garnered very very small negative freedoms garnered by a liberal Supreme Court kind of the only liberal Supreme Court that ever existed right Griswold mm-hmm. Roe right these sorts of brown um, yeah brown mm-hmm. right these sorts of negative freedoms from from that re- provided a small degree of relief from you know from the state repression but the way that was packaged up as if these were positive Universal freedoms that were inviolable uh, and actually fundamentally emancipated and somehow progressed, like this notion of societal progression that, you know, really, I think, hit a kind of perverse, um, you know, sort of apotheosis in the mid 2000s in kind of not like, I was gonna say in the Obama era, not just like pinning that on him. I just actually think there was this sort of celebratory, like, we've done it, folks. Um, here we are. Yes. We're gonna have gay marriage. Everything is amazing. Uh, now we'll have a transgender tipping point, right? And then, you know, since then, there's been this sort of like reluctance to admit that that was an ideological lie being sold to people and that that 1960s reference point is incredibly shallow on its face it's not it wasn't materially the kind of you know transformative change that people wanted to pretend it was and it was also a way of providing ideological cover for the fact that the Victorian consensus that we're talking about was actually not only not overturned in the 60s, it was entrenched and ratified. And the point is that that is the consensus about, you know, the sort of ability to target people and regulate their them at the bodily level that, you know, the state never wants to give up and that none of those Supreme Court decisions, you know, ever fully got rid of. And so the fact that some of them are being reversed now is really, to me, only the tip of the iceberg. And so I think our political consciousness has to have the chops to think back to the 1870s. It can't just sort of have a kind of left 1960s, 70s nostalgia around some supposed radical moment more feminists or gay lib or whatever or the black freedom movement you know some of them did articulate really radical revolutionary politics right but none of those were ever sort of codified and, and a lot of them aren't about um, sort of finding our, our blessing for existence in the state anyways so I think there's just this real opportunity in this moment to reckon with the, with the it's not even Victorian ghostliness I mean ghosts are very Victorian but it's like it's not <laughs> ghostly because the Victorian thing never died it's actual this yes. is the mm-hmm. regime under which We live, right? Like, I just think, again, every day we go out into this world and whatever we think we have freedoms, you know, to exercise, we actually are always being regulated through Victorian statutes. Like, you know you know, the regulation of sex work being one of them, but the regulation of pornography, the regulation of sex crimes, you know, the regulation of um, medicine and the way that it polices uh, the decisions that we're allowed to make about ourselves, our loved ones and our communities. Like we have already been enduring and we are produced by this Victorian mindset. And so in some ways it doesn't really appear to us, right, as artificial or as contingent and frankly, as vulnerable as it ought to. I think this would be an amazing Mm. moment for, you know, a wide spread kind of coalitional movement to think about common interest. Because I I really, again, think either we're going to end up finding out that, okay, fine, you know, this form of access to abortion is just gone. Or or we're gonna get this stupid fucking version that's like, well, actually, you just have to go to a doctor's appointment three times to get access <laughs> to this pill. That's yeah. disgusting. That's illegitimate bullshit. These are not wins. There's nothing to win there, right? And even minimizing damage cannot be sort of the mm-hmm. thing that we're working towards. We have to imagine something bigger than Comstock. We have to we have to have Absolutely. an imagination bigger than that fucking weirdo pervert's imagination. And guess what? We do perversion much better. We understand freedom much better. Right. And I think that if we were to, to really, I mean, I think we, we know how to do this, right. I I don't think there's anything fundamentally new required. It's just sort of like, I think retuning our understanding of the stakes um, and, and sort of seeing that if part of what we're we're fighting against right now isn't just the seeds planted in the 60s, because there's the liberal court, but there's also the rise of the new right, the far right, the evangelical right, you know, in the 60s, and the unfinished legacy of the white supremacist backlash against desegregation, which explains so much of what we're dealing with right now. But but understanding that a 100 or 90 years earlier, there was a similar set of questions that had a much more fundamental historical impact on how the state and the police operate and how the law implements. You know, those policies, I think then we really have something to work with. Then we really truly understand the stakes, but also I think then we are we're given that gauntlet, that challenge. Let's make our coalition, let's make our political Mm. imaginary bigger than fucking Anthony Comstock.
1: I want to ask you a question because I'm on board. This is the moment where I'm like, Jules is preaching. I'm ready to run outside and be like, what do I have to do? I'm ready. Um please draft me. We talked a little bit earlier may have been before we started recording, um, about political education yeah, being a component of this. And I'm just going to tell a story um, from the process of working on my book. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, before I even knew that this was going to be my life for the last few weeks, I was looking at Comstock. I s- said earlier, like, I was trying to figure out like where he lives in the story of my book, which also starts in 1866, but roughly mm-hmm. the same sort of stretch of time, which has everything to do with everything we've been talking about. And I kept coming up against these sort of like feminist pop versions of the Comstock story, essentially, that there was this like bad prude named Anthony Comstock and this great freedom defender named Margaret Sanger. And he put her in jail. And then we made contraception legal. And that's the story.
2: (laughs) Happily ever after. Yeah. And like, you know, there's a couple
1: of wrenches to throw in that story (laughs) that I'm going to throw one in right now, which is when we were talking about eugenics earlier, you know, like this has come up repeatedly, sometimes in bad faith from the right and anti-abortion groups talking to Margaret Sanger's um, own white supremacist and eugenics ideas about who should reproduce. And, you know, if you've ever heard sort of the phrase, like don't use abortion as birth control, like I kind of see that in this
3: Mm -hmm. context
1: You know, like the I there's a paper I came across called The Inadvertent Alliance of Anthony Comstock and Margaret Sanger by Karen Weingarten from just 2010. And, And she argues that, you know, actually, like they were both united in this project of reducing abortion. Mm -hmm. That, yes, he the Comstock Act absolutely led to the criminalization of Margaret Sanger and creating what, you know, is now known as Planned Parenthood, doing her education around contraception. Yes, all of those things are true, but they were united in this larger Victorian project that Jules, like, so, so just very laid out in a way that I think makes it feel vivid and alive in a way that it doesn't always feel like, Oh, these are these dead people. We don't have to worry about them. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying not to talk about the Comstock act as like a zombie act um, because it didn't fully die. You know, like there is not, you can't have a resurrection of something that was always there and shapes more of our political lives than maybe we're in contact with. And I think part of the reason for that is we're lacking some of the, this history. Mm. Um, And then the way that this history is interpreted through that progress narrative, through that Mm. rights narrative, ends up creating this very simplified version of it, where it's like, well, we want to be like Margaret Sanger, not like Anthony Comstock. Well, actually, maybe just these parts of the Margaret Sanger project. Well, okay, now it's a lot more complicated (laughs) than I thought it was. Um, You know, it's, I think, to your point of a constituency that is At least as big as the one that Comstock imagined, but necessarily must be larger. When I look back on what else I've been writing about over the last few years, whether it's, you know, attacks on Drag Queen Story Hour and public libraries, which very quickly over a matter of a year has led to now bans on drag performance and mm-hmm. what is what is the way that those bans are being talked about in the letter of the law? They're being framed as anti-obscenity. Yep. Right? They're like trying to link the performance of drag with obscenity, this incredibly Comstockian version of obscenity. And I was a little anxious seeing some people say, well, we don't need to worry about that because drag isn't <sighs> fundamentally obscene. And Phew. I think let's let's, That's so let's actually
2: I we don't, don't need to worry about that because Words famously only ever have one meaning, and it remains fixed for time immemorial. So, and it'll if be there's fine.
1: anything in American law that's been static and mutually yeah, it's agreed upon, it's it's the definition of obscenity. obscenity. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry. It's not an anti drag statute. It's an obscenity statute. Well, that's like saying, well, Anthony Comstock wasn't doing an anti abortion law. Right. It's an anti vice law. Um, I think we need to <laughs> <laughs> learn these bitter lessons that don't need to be bitter. I mean, that's the thing. Like, I find like moments of possibility and joy mm-hmm. in this like other era, and they have a lot more to do about resistance like people didn't stop using contraception because of anthony comstock people didn't stop having abortions because of anthony comstock people didn't stop developing new kinds of family and community relations around sexuality like if you want to do a progress narrative like maybe you could arguably say like sex is always reinventing and rearranging itself Mm -hmm. that is always happening and the state regulation of that. Um, those two things have somehow become inseparable. Mm
4: -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. can I be honest? What I think the stumbling block has been all along, it's race. It's just a very American story. Margaret Sanger did not have a feminist project that was as big as Anthony Comstock. She had one as small as Anthony Comstock because she agreed with him that the function of sexuality, you know, was the reproduction of the race. That is just a very 19th century idea. And I think, you know, I'll borrow a phrase from my from my dear friend and brilliant colleague, Kyla Schuler, who's written very, you know, elegantly about the history of what she calls and other people call white feminism. And so I think this is a really fundamental lesson that the progress narrative, the kind of pop feminist narrative, then the liberal feminist narrative, the state-facing feminist narrative that ends in RBG, whatever, notorious RBG, that hashtag, right? That history understands uh, the category of woman to be racially unmarked, which is to say white. And so it's entirely coincident with the history of gender as a property form in the United States, which comes out of the legal political infrastructure of chattel slavery and settler colonialism, where white women achieve political clout even before the right to vote in the late 19th century as moral reformers asserting their moral goodness and are increasing their political power as white women by targeting non-white women and by targeting working class white women, by targeting sex workers, by targeting queer and trans people, by targeting, uh, you know, in a, in a, you know, in a eugenic sense, reproduction. And so the issue is that there's this sort of narrative of progress that understands the widening scope of gender and reproductive freedom since the late 19th century uh, without with conspicuously by avoiding the fact that that freedom was understood and intended explicitly for white women only, and in fact only middle class white women, and was directly dependent on. Any time white women, you know, from the 19th century to the mid-century are gaining reproductive freedom, it is precisely reliant on curtailing that freedom for black and brown and indigenous women. And so this sort of fundamental first and second wave feminist project that is the right to decide whether or not to have children, it's actually the right to decide not to have children for white women, is directly dependent on a long-term racist project to uh, deliberately try to stop black, brown, and indigenous women and people from ever choosing to reproduce, right? Um, Or, you know, basically criminalizing, sterilizing, going after that, right? And so, you know, the issue for me about political education is also understanding that in the history of the United States, these questions of gender, sexuality, and reproduction are not just shot through with race, they have served a master narrative of racism, racial statecraft, and racial policing uh, all along. That is fundamental. That's not incidental. It's not even intersectional, as in race shows up here. It's actually the purpose mm-hmm. of introducing sexuality yes. as an object under the law and an object of policing. And so any feminist movement, any white feminist movement, right, that has disavowed that all along in order to amplify the citizenship standing of middle-class white women, right, this is a fundamental base level black feminist proposition. And I don't even just mean like a 1960s or 70s black feminist proposition. Like if you go and read Kyla's book, like black feminists, in the 1880s are making Mm -hmm. this critique of white women. They're like, you absolutely don't understand that your desire to have legal autonomy under the law, your desire to be educated, your desire to choose whether or not to have kids is directly dependent upon the criminalization of black women's bodies and the targeting of black reproduction, um, you know, for its reduction and elimination in explicitly, you know, eliminationist kind of context. And so I think this remains the key stumbling block to me. And I would actually, you know, almost want to Go back and read that into everything we've talked about today. All of these ways that we're told to just trust the law, trust technocracy, trust the Biden administration, all of that, again, codes autonomy and freedom under the law correlate to gender as white, as a white mm-hmm. property right, your yes. your white body is a piece of private property. This is the actual legal history. Your body is a piece of private property, and the state can only intrude on that private property so far because under a capitalist system, property is what has rights. Like this is a fundamentally useless and racist formulation because it's designed explicitly on the dispossession of anyone who doesn't fit that category, but more specifically, the dispossession of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people's uh, actual you know community bodies, families, kinship structures, intimacies, hopes, desires, and everything else. And so I think we will remain unable to achieve genuine coalition to the extent that, you know, these issues aren't framed around racism and also that political education for mobilizing You know, (laughs) for mobilizing white people in the United States. I mean, my goodness, if this mm -hmm. isn't sort of the quintessential problem of doing politics in the United States. So I'm not saying anything new here, but I just I feel like there's just such a a clarity that comes to mind when I'm talking about all of this because like restricting reproduction is literally racial statecraft. That is just its entire purpose. It was produced in during the 19th century to do that. So so the Comstock Law is a great example. This is what we're talking about, and it's not really. Lurking That far below the depths of the ADF people, it's not really lurking below any depths at all. They'll tell you, right? Mm-hmm. They'll tell you they're racist. They'll tell you their white supremacist, you know, story through whatever silly great replacement theory allegory or whatever they want to come up with. It's actually the liberals who won't tell you their, their investment in whiteness, the ones who won't tell you yes. that their so-called mm-hmm. feminism, their so-called progressive values are actually a kind of um, unmarked whiteness that understands the body as private property property. property and understands the right bearing subject as a private white subject, they're the ones who are not telling us, you know, their racial politics in this moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think as we're organizing right around this, we have to think about what are we going to do about that problem? And it's not to say that it doesn't exist, you know, further on the left, too. It absolutely does. So I really think, again, like, and, and I just, you know, it's so stood out to me. I don't know if you feel this way, too, Melissa, but it's like there's the whole, you know, whatever, like (laughs) I was about to impugn pundits, but here I am opining on a podcast, like whatever, you know, (laughs) but like there's this whole hand wringing industry, right? You know, scout us watch and da, 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 right? Like we're all out here doing this, whatever, fine. Um, But then I like actually have just been thinking about, as opposed to the sort of discursive space, that's like sit down, shut up and wait for further instructions from Planned Mm -hmm. Parenthood, right? There's actually a whole cadre of people who don't wait uh, and people who do. Amazing organizing people who actually fucking get people abortions, get people access to resources, information, literature they need, get people across state lines, and so on. And those often are honestly, they're like all black and brown led organizations, they're often queer and trans led organizations, and they just Mm -hmm. do it. They don't, they're smart too. They're not asking, right, to be put under the spotlight because they don't want to, you know, get more attention and criminalization on them, but like they're just doing it. And so, like, again, this sort of like black black, brown, queer, trans, intersectional history of feminist movement work has just always been doing this. They were doing it in the Comstock era too. They're just the ones who get shit done. And the rest of us, you know, to some extent, just sit around, you know, clutching our pearls, worrying about what we could or couldn't do while some people are just out there doing it. And I just think there are some lessons there thinking about how to not appropriate or prey on or also endanger those people's Mm -hmm. active ongoing efforts by trying to hold them up as some sort of vanguard. But understanding that scaling, right, uh, just sort of immediate action and thinking bigger and building that coalition that's bigger than Comstock's imagination, that's going to be quite challenging for these reasons because the entire history of US politics is, and it's sort of, you know the way racism is the sort of structuring antagonism they are in, I think it just creates a lot of drag and inertia that's really hard to get around. So I think this is our quintessential challenge. I don't really think there's any complicated intellectual questions to iron out about gender or sexuality or reproduction. I actually think the real sticking point for Mm -hmm. me is the political history and political present of race in this country and of racism. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're in a position
1: right now no, like I, it's, an it's, it's interesting that like talking about reproductive justice in that explicit way, which I don't think has come up in those words in this conversation is essentially maybe the closest sort of popular concept there is to conception, to boiling down what you were saying. Mm. Yeah. Um, into this is this long history of race and how feminism has essentially been constructed as a state-making project by and for white women. Yeah. And that that has been resisted since this time period that we are talking about. Um, You know, I'm thinking of like the... The breaks in the suffrage movement around race like these are not remote histories um you know you, we can still read the speeches of black feminists calling out white feminists you know hey do you guys know what happened to me on the train on the way to this women's convention right. as a black woman can we talk about that that's important um and so these are i it, i guess what i'm trying to say is as you were talking about like it no it's not just a question of you know quote-unquote intersectionality it's understanding that these process these projects created one another mm. And there has to be in this moment, both like that deep reckoning. And then as you were saying, looking at who's actually doing the work that's keeping people safe right now without also further criminalizing people who are doing that work. You know, I'm thinking about people on abortion funds, people who are Mm -hmm. doing underground pill access. You know, it's the decision that comes down today could just further entrench and is most likely to further entrench that divide where the people who are taking the most legal risk, the people who are most able to keep abortion accessible in this country are going to be larded down with further risk and further criminalization at the same time as legislators are wringing their hands and saying the best we can do is codify Roe. And that, that disconnect is just really fucking hard, <laughs> you know, like to mm-hmm. sit with and to think about um, to your point about sort of the punditry circle, like, you know, I was challenged. Is, is this fair by the editors of my magazine to think about, well, what would the policy solutions to this be in this mm-hmm. moment? Um, and where I sort of landed is like figure out how to back up the people who are actually taking the risks right now. Even Mm -hmm. if that's some political theater in Congress about let's introduce a full repeal of the Comstock Act. And that's not likely to change the law, but it is a political act. And right now we can take political risks to protect the criminal risks that other people are taking. We don't actually have to wait for the law to catch up. It's not going to. Mm -hmm. We don't have time. So that that's sort of in terms of like immediate things that are on my mind the immediate fallout of both this history and then this like question of what the Supreme court's talking about as we are having this conversation, though maybe they figured it all out last night and they're just like waiting to turn in the paper at the last minute. Uh, <laughs> they're trying knows? to do
2: it when, you know, it's going to hit uh, when everybody's asleep and it's almost exactly. Saturday, you know, Friday they're, at
4: 7 PM. It's like maximum time. chaos.
2: Classic yeah. PR strategy move. <sighs>
4: But isn't this super yeah. helpful, though, in some ways? Like, you know, this morning I was like, I can't believe we have to talk about this without knowing the decision. But actually, actually, because what you're just saying <laughs> is so helpful. So yeah. like it yeah. does whatever the decision is, it's going to be bad. However bad it is, is still bad and doesn't really if we take our marching orders from what this court decides, mm-hmm. we've already lost. And so mm-hmm. let's be thinking more concretely. Right. And And I agree with you. You know, I've just found myself reflecting a lot lately, more in terms of anti-trans stuff. Though again, I see these as interconnected. How loath I am to even have opinions about like electoral politics and legislation and judicial history. Like these are not things I genuinely get up in the morning for. But I, I actually do mourn the loss of any political will to even do any political theater as an expression of solidarity. And I am annoyed at Democrats, you know, it's like, uh, you know, broadly speaking, why not introduce a Comstock repeal? Biden's line that all he really wants is to codify Roe versus Wade under law is a joke. Even doing that, first of all, might not do anything. It might actually have no effect on the legality of Mm -hmm. abortion. But even if it had his intended degree of effect, it's not very helpful. It wouldn't even return us to the status quo we had. And Roe versus Wade was never a very good decision. We need so much more than that. And so it's like, no one is really sticking, you know, willing to stick their necks out on this issue. And I just, I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot in relationship to what happened in Tennessee, you know, and 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 like these yes. moments where, you know, yeah. a few Politicians, not coincidentally, tend to be progressive, tend to be black politicians, right? Are willing to actually do something, right? And then who shows up? Young people show up. I Maybe mean, this is a conversation that we had with Lexi, right? But just mm-hmm. thinking about who is even willing to do any politics at this moment that involve mass mobilization um, and how to think of that in solidarity with people taking action that could be illegal or criminalized um, on local levels that are actually you know, making a big difference right now. I it just this seems to be like a huge missing piece at this moment. I'm really, 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 really frustrated and maybe we'll have to have a death panel episode about this at some point. Really frustrated by the lack of imagination around gay and trans like freedom in this moment. Mm-hmm. Just like no one wants to do anything, right? Like Florida just banned pride and now there's like the first pride in Florida being like, just kidding, we're not even gonna have pride. And it's like Cool. You're not even, hey, I wonder, was the original Pride a permitted march? Hmm, interesting. Mm-hmm. Not even gonna do Pride? You're not even gonna do what Pride actually fucking is? Like, right? Or like, you know, it's just, yep. it's, it's, it's 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 sort of interesting to watch the capitulation in real time to more kind of fascist political movements, you know, by saying, oh, we wouldn't even want to lift a finger. We don't even want to do political theater. We don't even want to try something that we don't think is gonna pass um, but might have a positive message of solidarity and help like mobilize people or like fire people up or like convince people to care about things nope we just don't want to do that and it's like excuse me (laughs) what 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 are you what are you even doing with your time right and I just I don't know it's it's something that's really I just feel like the way you laid that out was really persuasive and really convincing um but also reminded me that like One thing we might say is like very little is being tried right now. So, like, there's also a lot of space for people to try doing politics.
1: Yeah. We cannot wait for the email from Planned Parenthood to to
4: come on this one. And because the email is going to say, send us $10. Like, okay.
1: Yeah. Like, I alluded to this in the story, and this could be a whole other piece of just sort of like what we're up against right now, the conditions that created this moment were the myopic focus on Roe were the reliance on large national nonprofit organizations to tell us what to do were reliant on quote-unquote the Democrats to do the right thing not even that all Democrats um, actually support abortion or abortion access so it's I I find it inviting because those are all mm. dusty old problems that we have to deal with anyway why not start now yeah because oh, this this wow is something sad. that, we can't donate and vote our way out of. I feel like I say that every time I come on the show. I feel like that's probably heard by the audience. <laughs> yes.
4: yes, truer than ever.
1: But you know, and I'm and I'm not saying everybody has to like go download Signal and figure out how to break the law today. Though it wouldn't be a bad idea to download Signal <laughs> and to put the phone number of the Repro Legal Defense Fund in your phone. Um, it's not a bad idea to remind everybody that if you need to. Self-manage an abortion, one prestone pill, followed by four misoprostol pills 24 to 48 hours later is one way. But also, you don't even just need mifepristone; You could yeah. take 12 misoprostol pills, dissolve four at a time under your tongue every three hours, and you do not need to tell police what you took if they ask. And that is a direct quote from Renee Bracey Sherman, who uh, leads the group, We testified. who, you know, are in this same sort of dance of constantly being asked to defer to Washington and mm-hmm. the big orgs mm-hmm. um, and I find the groups who are sort of in that dance right now very very interesting to follow and instructive
2: this has honestly been such a wonderful it feels feels so weird to say that this has been such a wonderful conversation but I <sighs> yeah I feel like I've I've been able to grasp what's happened and process it in a way that, has been really hard. It's it's been you know many years now of this kind of escalating assault on this kind of landscape of of protecting "quote unquote" women and children through reifying a new resurgence of like the nineteenth century hunt to weed out the dysgenic elements of society. It's been really difficult to sort of come up for air and actually get a full perspective on it. And I'm not sure why this conversation I feel like gave me that. But that's I'm actually feeling like I'm at a place of clarity that I actually haven't been able to get at because it's just such a constant pace. And I think that's another part of this, too. I mean, Melissa, I think the first time we had you on this show, we were talking about how in terms of a kind of temporal aspect that are that we have to deal with and reckon with. There's such a constant and sort of aggressive pace of, you know, whether it's like 490 some odd bills trying to attack or eliminate trans people within the first four months of a year, or it's something like this where you have this kind of concentrated Two weeks of just absolute hell where suddenly Comstock becomes highly centrally relevant again and this sort of conversation we have becomes really important. But it's it's like it's how would we even be able to sort of step back and sort of recognize this as part of a kind of long 19th century, which is the kind of joke that Jules and Artie and I always make to each other <laughs> when we're sitting down to play an so episode. True, like, it's so getting true. longer every
4: day. Yeah, we're yeah. like, look,
2: we've another list of, uh, you know, revisiting the long 19th century thesis. This is going to be a lot of fun, but it does, you know, it, it it's so helpful for me to just take a step back and sort of locate this within, you know, people's, people's work like Kyla's where we really have, like, this kind of moment of seeing also eugenics as this project of, um, you know, not just reading social class onto nature, but providing a a kind of colorblind empirical justification for naturalizing white supremacy also, and really, you know, make sure to centralize the ways that we're thinking of even how we're moving forward with, you know, whatever, whether it's your sort of own project that you're organizing with, or if you're like not organizing and you're trying to get involved with something and things that are already going on, you know, these are are moments where we have to start, I think, not just learning these hard lessons, but kind of questioning what are the ways that we can sort of break out of some of the repetition and actually make our own mistakes? Because it feels like you know, we've been sort of on this cycle of, of nostalgia here. I mean, it really just kind of reminds me of that, that Lauren Berlant quote from Cruel Optimism. Um, and they write, the desire for a less bad life involves finding resting places. The reproduction of normativity occurs when rest is imagined nostalgically. That is in the places where rest is supposed to have happened. It's a mode of living on with the dread of an eternal present that gets drowned out by the noise of promised normativity's soothing bustle. And I'm just so glad that Mm. we took time to like let motherfucking Comstock haunt us today because Mm. I feel like I've just learned so much, but also kind of gotten some good fuel (laughs) for my rage to find a way to sort of move forward from here as well. So thank you both so much Mm. for this.
4: Well, thank you, I thank you, Melissa, too. Your work has just, you know, for years been so instrumental for me in keeping up with news, but also putting it in context mm-hmm. and seeing interconnections and seeing the politics of it. And I just feel so grateful to have been able to have this conversation with you and with B. And I also found it clarifying. And I feel like my takeaway, you know, I, I don't know <laughs> if I want to make a slogan, it's like, who's going to stop Comstock? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, you could put that on a Mm t-shirt, right? No one ever stopped him. He's never been stopped. So politics means stopping that guy. Who's going to do it? How are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? Now is the best time ever. Um, 150 years ago was great, but today is the second best time.
2: Yep. There's no time to wait and there's no better time. Thank you guys both.
1: I can't believe that it's taken this long to have a conversation with Jules like this. And of course, this was
3: exactly (laughs) the way
1: that it went. Um, I'm just absolutely honored to get to to be in conversation with you anytime and Mm. be the community that you've created around this Uh, um I don't know it pushes me it always pushes me to to come to new places it's not often that um I talk about a story and then realize there are like 10 new ideas that I had in that conversation (laughs) Mm. (laughs) this is just a really rare and generative space it's a good bet today
2: it's important yeah. to think together. And honestly, I'm so excited now to see where Comstock ends up in your book. What a weird um, promo I know. thing that could be. <laughs> yeah,
3: <laughs> a little, you know, we Comstock
2: really, bookmark. You can put him really anywhere you want. We really need your want. book. We really yes. need it. Yeah. I know. Oh, man. That's a conversation. Where in the world
4: is Anthony Comstock? Yeah, yeah.
2: Yes, we can do like a countdown. he wants to a be, a unfortunately. <laughs>
4: Well, you guys will be the first to know when I have a, a pub
1: date. So, yeah, I'm so excited. I will be back.
2: I can't wait. Yeah. I can't wait. I think that's well. the perfect place to leave it for today, Melissa. Thank you so much again, as always, for coming on. I'm already looking forward to the next time. And, of course, we'll put links to all of Melissa's reporting for The New Republic uh, in the episode description. She's done... Uh, four pieces that have touched on comstock since 2020 that are all fantastic so you know if you're ready to dive in that'll all be in the episode description and also if you want to follow melissa she is on twitter at melissa jira and if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes become a patron at patreon.com slash pod we are entirely listener supported so thank you to all of our patrons we couldn't do any of this without you and if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, or request it at your local library and follow us at Panel underscore.
3: As always,
2: Medicare for all now, solidarity forever, stay alive another week.